Osiris. I knew I was an outsider in my community, even in my family. I knew I was an outsider. So I hid in music. Or maybe I didn't hide. Maybe I found myself. Hi, this is Maggie Rose. You're listening to Salute the Songbird on Osiris Media. Salute the Songbird is a platform for women in music to share their stories and let their voices be heard. And everyone has a seat at the table. Thank you so much for joining me for the fourth episode of Season 2 of Salute the Songbird. Today's guest is an influential figure in the music world not because she makes music herself, but because she has become a reputable tastemaker for serious music fans all over the world, guiding them with her informed and eclectic curation of Roots music, new and old, through her outstanding and appropriately named new show with Apple Music, Record Bin Radio. I'm talking about journalist and broadcaster, not to mention playwright and social justice crusader, Kelly McCartney. She's written for numerous publications such as NPR, No Depression, and Q-Point, and launched several other successful music programs and podcasts like Hangin' and Sangin' and Southern Craft. Kelly's work has been instrumental in pulling together the disparate threads of music and culture, using them to sew together the quilt that she calls Americana music, and she understands that Americana and Roots music is a deeply inclusive label. You're about to hear how she walks that walk through her various efforts. Meet this week's songbird, Kelly McCartney. surprised when Mrs. Johnson wore her mini skirt into the room. I don't know a lot about your upbringing. It's, mm. it's hard to discover that on the internet and what it was like to be a young Kelly in the world and how you develop oh, yeah. such a fine musical palette. You know, it's one of those things. I grew up in Louisiana, rural Louisiana, not New Orleans or anything like that. And you know, there's a Maya Angelou quote, music was my refuge. I could turn my back to the loneliness and, you know, curl up between the notes. That's paraphrasing wildly, but that was it for me. Like, I knew I was an outsider in my community, even in my family. I knew I was an outsider. I didn't have the language to understand what kind of outsider. So I hid in music or maybe I didn't hide. Maybe I found myself. Maybe that's the right. better way. And so I would just sit in my room with my records. And I, as a little kid, you know, like eight to 10, I would set up my puzzle and game boxes on my bed as a drum kit. I would get the sticks from like a wooden hanger and those would be my sticks. And I would play along with all my records until there were holes. And then I would flip the boxes over and play along. Or I would use my trapper keeper as the hi-hat or whatever. And so... That was just how I spent my time, that and in my head. And so I always loved music. I also, even as a kid, I knew I was a good writer. Finally, as a teenager, I decided, oh, well, I can be a music journalist. I'll go write for Rolling Stone, mm. which I still haven't done. Hey, John Freeman, call me. Right. Um, yeah. 
you know, I went to college for journalism. And then right out of college, I started working as a personal assistant. I was in Los Angeles. I started working as a personal assistant for Susanna Hoffs and her mom. The Bengals had just broken up. And so it was working with her as she did her first solo record and started that. And then I started like working with bands. And so the writing took a, a back burner for a while. And I just started booking clubs and repping bands and booking tours and going on tour and just working with artists in the trenches. And it was so fun, except that maybe President Company excluded. I don't know. Working directly with artists always made me want to quit music. <laughs> right. You got a little too close to see the pores and the imperfections when you're that close. Yeah. Y'all are a handful. We're a needy bunch. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, indeed. And yet I love you so much. Right. So, right. so, yeah, after years of doing that off and on and quitting and coming back in 2013, I kind of had a come to Jesus moment with myself. and was like, OK, look, let's figure this out. You know, actually, I had a wonderful conversation with Annie Roboff, the songwriter. I didn't know her. A mutual friend of ours connected us and she like grilled me, like made me kind of tell her my whole life story. And she got to the end and she said, yeah, you're a writer, but because you've done all that other stuff, you can have conversations with artists that no one else can because you know what their life is like. You know every side of the industry because I've worked at a label. I've worked at a major publisher. I've worked at clubs. I've been on tour. I've slept in the bottom bunk above the gear shift. I know what the life is. And so with Annie's blessing, I was like, yeah, okay, I'm finally going to commit to music journalism full time. And I moved back to Nashville then, and it just, everything fell into place. Well, I'm very thankful to, what is her name, the writer? Annie Roboff. Annie Roboff. She, yeah. I need to look her up. She has some cuts you would recognize. So I'm sure. Yeah. Well, just to have seen behind the scenes and to be a personal assistant, a booker. I know you booked at Genghis Cohen, which is a great name, a venue that's no longer around. And you've written for No Depression and NPR and like your prose is just as awesome as your interviews are. But there is an ease to your conversations that when I listen, it's very apparent that you're not a journalist who's just blasting through a bunch of bullet points that you have or looking at a Wikipedia page right before they come into the room. Like you're someone who's become intimately involved with the music of the artists that you're about to speak with. And I always discover something new. Your interview with Jason Isbell on Southern Craft was one of my favorite interviews with him because it was something that presented new anecdotes that I had never heard before. And I think that that's just a testament to, like you said, the fact that you know that it's not the glamorous job that everyone showcases to their fans, the highlight reel. There's a lot of work and emotional torment that goes into doing this and that cyclical pattern of I'm the greatest thing ever. I suck. I don't know what I'm doing. And then just back and around and around again. So you yeah. find these people in these moments that are huge moments when they're releasing a new project and you're still able to get to the vulnerability of who that person was that was put into this music we're hearing. And it's a really beautiful gift. Well, thank you. Yeah. And, you know, and, and a lot of that is just going into it, understanding that they are a person. 
you know, they're a person first. Their humanity comes first. And their humanity is part of their artistry. And so I kind of walk into every interview like we're already friends. And at this point, a lot of times we are already friends mm-hmm. or at least acquaintances. But, you know, even with somebody like Daniel Lenoir, who, you know, my goodness, like 30 some years I've been listening to records he's made. Right. Never met him. But I was just like, hey, OK, whatever. We're going to do this like every other person and it works and it makes i think you can testify to this artists don't like being put on a pedestal you know that's an impossible position And it's a dark place to be when you feel like you've fallen off that pedestal. Yeah. And any wrong move can make you fall. Right. Especially today where I I feel like there is such an examination of everything being said and done as there should be. I think that there is a responsibility for people who have a platform to be putting words that are going to have a positive effect out there. but. I think the humanity and reminding people of that is what makes people fall more deeply in love with that music. Yeah. And that's the same for me. I walk away from almost every interview with a crush on whoever I interview, (laughs) you know, until the next one, you know, right? exactly. that's how it goes. Because, yeah, it's like when you're thoughtful and trying to, like you said, kind of get to the vulnerable parts of somebody, it creates that emotional intimacy in that moment. And no, it doesn't last, obviously, but it is a very special experience. And for me, you know, I, <laughs> Kev Mo likes to correct me because I once said that he has the greatest job and I have the second greatest job. He's like, no, no, you have the greatest job in the world for you. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I do. And it is. It's perfect. He's and a wise man. He is. Yeah. You know, and the fact that not only do I get to have these really meaningful conversations particularly with like record bin radio, I also get to curate the music that I love and support artists who might not have a platform other places. Mm -hmm. And a huge part of my mission with that show, and also when I was doing Southern Craft, and honestly in everything that I do, the biggest part of my mission right now is normalizing marginalized identities right i love your work with the rainy day fund yeah thank you black indigenous people of color and the lgbtqia community especially in americana music which yeah you know i think you've also with your reputation been tasked a little bit to help define what the evolving meaning of americana music is with what you're curating on your playlist i think a lot of people are looking to you to kind of point them in the direction of where this expanding genre is going. Does, do you yeah. ever feel that overwhelm <laughs> with that? I don't because what I've kind of specifically built into the mission of the show, the other part, is that it's roots music. Mm. You know, because the term Americana, I'm pretty clear on what it means to me. 
But I wanted to be broader than that. I wanted to be able to play rock and roll. I wanted to be able to play real deal folk, you know, and those things can fit under the Americana umbrella, but they don't necessarily. But it all fits into roots music, American roots music, blues, even jazz is roots music. Mm -hmm. So, you know, playing Nina Simone, is she Americana? No, but she's roots. And so that's, again, it's just like broadening people's vision and understanding that it's just good music. Like it can sit next to each other. A classic soul song can sit next to a current rock and roll song. As long as it's a great song, cool, you know? Right. Well, there's a lot of parallels, I think, between that mission that you're on and what myself and a lot of artists are doing who've kind of felt lost on the musical spectrum is we're just trying to do things that we think are connecting and true and authentic to ourselves. And sometimes it takes a little trial and error to find that, but it's just this constant expansion of what we're into and then putting that on a plate for people and trying not to get bogged down in the conversation of what is this? What is this? What do we do with you? And I've had more labels tell me that over the course of my career where at first it was discouraging. And now I'm kind of excited by that response (laughs) because that means that I'm disrupting them in a way that is not uh, easily contained. Yeah. Nobody wants to fit in a box, you know? Right. And, you know, like I told you on Twitter the other day, it's like this new record of yours is the record that I've been waiting for and wanting from you. Like it's what I heard in your voice the first time I listened to you a few years ago. Mm. I mean, you're a soul singer. Sing it, you know. I feel like the Indigo Girls raised us, you know, mm. and their music and their example. And I've been listening to them and following them since 1989. I met them first in 1994 and was able to spend a week on the road kind of watching them operate up close and then also from afar for all these years. And activism is just it's a part of it. Aspiring to that has always been in me, but particularly, yes, over the past few years. I have come to understand that as a white person, I have a moral imperative to do the work of dismantling white supremacy. It is not the work of black people. It is not the work of brown people or indigenous people. It is white people's work. And yes, I'm queer, but my whiteness outranks that. So everything I do now and for the past few years, I look at it through that lens and it has to be intentional and it has to be intersectional. 
because, you know, all of the efforts in Nashville with the change the conversation and trying to push for gender parity, I've been pushing back on that for years because it wasn't intersectional. Mm. And I have felt like any real change, we have to lock arms. You know, women with BIPOC and queers, we have to lock arms. And when we do, there are more of us and we can make change. But one group doing their thing and another doing their thing, when it's siloed and compartmentalized, it's chaos. So if we lock arms and do this work together, we can affect change. And so, you know, I've made that a part of my professional work. You know, when I was at the Bluegrass situation, we started some very intentional elements in our coverage to make sure that voices were getting amplified that deserved it. Then with the Rainy Day Fund, you know, honestly, I got lucky with that. After I parted ways with the Bluegrass situation, I was setting up a production company for myself and I did it as a nonprofit because, you know, I wanted activism to be a part of it, whether that was producing the benefits for headcount that I was doing in Nashville or Mom's Demand Action, whatever it was. And this guy named Donald Cohen, like a super fan of music, he Mm. came up to me at Americana Fest in 2018. It was at the John Prine show at City Winery. And he said, hey, I'm a fan of Hanging and Singing. I just want to say hi. I was like, great. Thanks, man. Appreciate that. And he walked off and he came back and he said, hey, is your nonprofit set up yet? I was like, almost. And he said, okay, because I've been giving some grants to different artists that you know and are friends with and that I love. He said, and I have this chunk of money. I need a nonprofit to partner with to set up a little micro grant fund. And I said, yes, I'm your person. Because, you know, he had been supporting Yola and Birds of Chicago and Amethyst Kia and Layla McCalla and Kaya Cater. And they were all my friends. And I don't know if I've ever told Donald this, but I went to a few of them. I was like, is this dude for real? Like, what's what's the scoop? Right. <laughs> right. Because it was just kind of too good to be true. It's like somebody says, hey, I have, a ch- yeah. I have a chunk of money that I want you to help me give away to artists that you love. Like, ah, there's, there's got to be a catch. catch. Got to. Right. And so I came up with the name Rainy Day Fund for Ma Rainey because she's both queer and black and roots music. And we set it up and started giving money away. But again, Maggie, it's like for two and a half years, I was knocking on doors all around Nashville trying to get support. Couldn't Mm. do it. I couldn't get people to step up and help me raise money or even send out an email to their email list to help us raise money. And then I went to Brandy and Catherine Carlisle last year and said, hey, I know y'all are raising a bunch of money for social justice orgs. I'm doing this. It is also supporting Black artists. Can we maybe get in on this? And Catherine was like, yes, absolutely. How about we'll make a little donation now and then we'll include you in a live stream. I was like, great. Awesome. Couldn't be better. So they gave us a little money. And then I never heard back about the live stream. And I wasn't going to push my luck, you know. I mean, <laughs> Brandy's at the, on the top of the moon right now. It's, right. It's like everybody's asking for stuff. So I wasn't going to get greedy. And then back in February, she texted me. I was like, hey, I'm going to do this show at the Ryman. And I want it to benefit Rainy Day Fund. I've been reading about it. And it's amazing. And I want to help. 
And I was like, come on, come on with it. And it was also Fanny's School of Music because their dear friends of mine was just brilliant. Yeah, tell me what you're doing with them. I live right by there. I love that place. Oh, they're just such good friends of mine. And anytime we can find any crossover to help each other, we do. Because it's all the same work, right? Supporting people who need support. And then we got to talk about Reese Palmer and Color Me Country as part of this. I was just going to say, your conversation with her is everyone should go check that out because 2020 was such a great teacher, I think, Mm -hmm. for so many because we can hardly call it a nuance in what you're talking about with the amplification of marginalized voices when you talk about the silos of different groups trying to push that forward. There are almost blinders on some people who are activists for the equal play of women versus men when there are so many other groups that weren't getting representation. And I think that I have at least observed, and I don't think I'm being too Pollyanna with this, that people really finally paid attention to that, or at least were quiet enough to look around and see all the other ways in which this gold mine we're sitting on is not being mined. All this talent, all these people who have incredible music weren't being heard. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And right about this time last year, I was already signed on with Apple for the what was going to be Apple Music Country. It hadn't launched yet. And the launch had gotten pushed back. So I went to the bosses because I had just had Reese on my old show, Hanging and Sangin'. And she told me all about her Color Me Country podcast that she was getting ready mm. to launch in like 10 it's days awesome. from then or something. And I said, okay, great. You know, and I didn't tell her this. And I went back to Apple. And I said, hey, look, y'all need Reese Palmer. Y'all need Color Me Country on Apple Music Country. And they were like, connect us. And so I did. And they immediately snapped her up. And she and I have been just best mates ever since and taking it to the streets, really, with what we're doing. Then back in December, you know, obviously, Culinary Country Radio is just phenomenal with what it's doing and the attention that it's getting. And so it was the day that we had a call and Reese told us that she was getting the Country Music Hall of Fame exhibit. And on the way back from that, I called her and I said, hey, I think we need to set up a rainy day offshoot for Color Me Country, an artist fund to do grants. And she's like, yeah, what do we have to do? And we raised, just putting the word out through her channels, we raised like $15,000 in just a couple of months. That's how desperate people are to see themselves reflected and represented in this music, you know? You see it, you can be it. Yeah. And we were providing a way, you know, everybody's like, well, how do we support the artists? Here you go. Give us money and we'll give it to them. You get a tax write off. They get to pay their rent. They get to make a video. They get to pay an attorney. They get to master their record. It does change lives. And the feedback we get from both funds, it's so rewarding. And she did believe me of what this work means just to your soul when you're doing Mm. it, when you're supporting people. But we kind of go back and forth. Like she'll get a response from an artist that's just, their mind is blown that 
we would support them because it's not just like we're not giving them a lot of money. You know, it's like 500 bucks, maybe a thousand. But what it does is say to them, I see you. I support you. You belong here. And that does more for them than a couple of bags of groceries ever will. So it's just the greatest work. And the reason I just do it pro bono, we don't make any money. Just a lot of good karma. It just feels good. I think it's fantastic to be seen. You have no idea how that just helps someone propel forward where that may have been the straw that breaks the camel's back and and has them pack up. And I know so many people have been discouraged. And Reese in particular has been in this business making country music longer than most people I know in the industry. And I've been here for 13 years and she was here Mm -hmm. when I got here and she's so smart. And I think that her resilience is apparent and you guys have such a great rapport and everyone should check out that conversation because it's very entertaining, but you also think of really fleshed out what it is that is the issue in our industry in Nashville. You talk about how some of the institutions are performing to help mitigate this problem and how the Opry is doing. I love how the Opry seems to represent a cross section of what's happening in Nashville that you are certainly not seeing on country radio. And I think they're doing a good job modernizing that by having all ages. And I feel like CMT and Leslie Fram has also widened her purview Mm -hmm. of what needs to be heard and seen. And it's just exciting to see that. But I know that a lot of it is because there are the squeaky wheels like you and Reese and Leslie Fram and these people who have their finger on the pulse of what needs to be heard and are determined to make it so. Yeah, you know, if only, hopefully country radio will come along. If not, we got Apple Music Country. We got other outlets. I'm giving up. I'm giving up on country radio. You know. I love country music. Yeah. I listen to your show. (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, I think it was last week or something, the Americana album chart. Valerie June was at the top. Yeah. and She's awesome. In the top 20, it was about 40% not straight white people. And I was like, that's the ratio. Like, that's what we need. Because Amethyst was on there. Melissa Carper was on there. I think Rhiannon and Francesco were on. So it was just beautiful. Aaron Lee Tajian was on there. So, you know, I love him. Shall we borrow from Jim Lauderdale? Now that's Americana. Right? Like, when it represents all of the voices. And yeah, I've been pushing from the inside out for, you know, as long as they've let me around Nashville. So I do think Reese is right that the institutions, most of them, are trying to be on the right side of things. Mm -hmm. On the Americana side, they've been trying for longer, but now country is. And here's an interesting thing I found out some years ago from a radio person. You know how radio stations use the programming software that has the algorithms or whatever in it? There's a built-in filter that limits the number of women that get played in any hour. If they just click that switch off, it automatically bumps women up to 30%. But they don't. They keep it gated. And those presets are all determined on archaic research that yes. isn't even really means a nothing. representation of what people yeah. want to hear. 
Yeah. I did not know that. But yeah. now I'm pissed about it. Yeah. As if I weren't already <laughs> pissed I know. about that yeah. system. A radio person told me and the station that that person was at, they're good on the gender parity because A, they turned off the filter, but B, they just make sure they are. And that's, you know, Risa and I talk about this a lot. It's this, It's amazing how much change you can do an effect when you're just a little bit thoughtful. I'm going to pivot a little bit. I want to ask you about this play that you're working on. You're a playwright in addition to all the other things that you're involved in. Well, I was before the pandemic. We'll see if it comes back around. Mm -hmm. I had this idea probably 25 or more years ago to take songs and take the lyrics and expand the stories into monologues and sort of fill in the space between the lines. And so I called the series Between the Lines. And so I've written a number of them over the years. Actually, when I was at the Bluegrass Situation, we did a version of it where I wrote some and I got artists to write some, just like a short story based on a song. Like Gretchen Peters did one. I think Ryan Colwell maybe did one. So that's always kind of been rumbling around in my brain. And so I just, yeah, about a year and a half or so ago, I started thinking about actually writing a play. And the song I wanted to do first was The High Women, to take that song and take each verse and create a monologue and then add others, you know, these archetypes of women throughout history who have suffered for justice, basically, or for existing. So I was sort of focused on that. And then, like, I was turning 50. I don't even remember all of the, what was going on in my head, but then it sort of like sprung up in me to write my story. And so I was like, well, the Indigo Girls, like that's the soundtrack of my story, but more specifically the Amy Ray songs of the Indigo Girls. Cause you know, I'm an Amy. If I'm singing (laughs) Indigo Girls songs, I'm an Amy. And we have such an interesting, different, life paths, but similar enough. And so I got connected with this theater in New York City and I went and met with them and I I told the artistic director both ideas and she loved them both. And she's like, but the one about you, like that's the one because it, I mean, she wanted, we wanted to do both, but we were going to start with the one about me. And so it's sort of the story of my journey told It's three different me's sitting on the stage at three different ages, at 13, 25, and 40. And so they're interacting and sort of telling the story of my life to a certain extent, just in terms of my family life, dealing with alcoholic parents and divorce and identity and all of that stuff. And Amy Ray lyrics are kind of woven into the dialogue. I love um, the concept. I imagine that the slight role reversal of being the one divulging all of your life experience might be a little scary. You're usually the one pulling that out of people, and now here you are having to present it to an audience. 
Yeah, it was. And yet what I came to was that in just writing it, and I highly recommend like for anybody who has things from their life that they're holding on to or that are holding them back, whether that's shame or regret or anger, just write it down mm. and getting it out. Because what I came to realize through that process, and you'll know this as a songwriter, is like once you get it out, it's just a story then. Yeah. It's so clearly not who I am. It's just a story that I lived through, but it doesn't hold power over me or who I am or what I do. And yeah, it was, you know, I think three or four, maybe four people have read it, including Amy Ray. So what you was know, that like? Um, well, she's such a wonderful person, just deeply compassionate and empathetic and we know each other well enough now she honestly her feedback was i think you need to take my lyrics out because your writing is better than, than my, my lyrics and that's about as glowing of a review as you can get but yeah you're like no yeah. those are kind of important in uh, yeah, the assembly I mean, of the story yeah and she just thought that like my words told my story better than hers did and i understand that perspective and so but her words catalyzed the telling of the story too. So, yeah, yeah, and they were, you know, there were songs of hers or theirs were like so, just absolutely critical at certain moments in my life. Like they got me. Swamp Ophelia got me through 1994 and 95. So when I revisit it, I'm gonna have to like work out a compromise with her. It's like, okay, maybe I'll scale back some, but. I would love to keep some of the lyrics in because A, that's the concept. But B, I do think it takes it to a different level. And the play is called With the Tide after one of her lyrics in Kid Fears. Replace the anger with the tide is the lyric. I'm so excited. I hope that more than, I know that more than four people will get to go through this awesome experience. I'm manifesting it for you okay willing it into right. an existence all right yeah casting is going to be a very i mean that's the point where we were at where we were going to cast and do a reading of it just to kind of hear yeah. it come alive and see where it was that's really exciting and a really wonderful idea other than your first time interviewing the indigo girls which i imagine was a little harrowing were there any interviews that you were just shaking in your boots before or the whole time or yeah i mean early on when i started interviewing people 20 years ago they were all harrowing talking to patty griffin in 2002 or something mm. boy and i love me some patty griffin Maggie. me too i would ask a question and her answer would be like yeah but well, i don't know uh i guess so I'm like blowing through my questions and just going, right. oh, my God, I have nothing. What am I going to do? And then I asked her something about the music business because like Napster, like all of that stuff was going on. Oh, and God. Boy, she like I keyed in to her sweet spot and she just went and ran. And then she'd be like, oh, my God, I don't usually talk this much. I'm so sorry. I guess my coffee is kicking in. I was like, no, no. <laughs> 
Yeah, have more coffee. Yeah, go for it, (laughs) B. So it ended up being fine, but I was sweating. She was tough. I talked to Lenny Kravitz. Took me a little bit to warm him up. Mm -hmm. Sinead O'Connor. She was not easy to warm up. But then once we got going, it was great. But, you know, most people are like Annie Lennox is just as lovely and gracious as you would think she is, you know, absolute bona fide rock star. I love her. Yeah. Mavis Staples is just pure Mm. joy, you know, so like they're pros. They're just they're pros. They've talked to everybody. But kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, it's like when I get to the end of an interview with somebody like that or like I remember Ben Gibbard from Death Cab for Cutie. I talked to him a few years back and at the end he said, you know, I just, I have to thank you for not making me answer the same questions that I have answered all day long. He's like, that was right. so fun. It's like, whoo. I think but, it goes back to what you were saying about the humanity though. And I was going to ask you when it stopped being harrowing, but it was probably just the repetition of realizing that these are people and sometimes you're coming at them when they've just had a terrible day or something happened to them or there are so many factors that I think play into having a good interview and getting people relaxed in a state where they're willing to divulge and hopefully remember that they're talking about their dream job and the fact that they get to do this thing that so many people would like to do. It's a luxury. Yeah. And I think it became less harrowing when, like I told you, I just, made the decision to treat everybody like we were already friends. Hey, everybody. Maggie here. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Kelly. I have to say my personal favorite philosophy that she shared with us is treat everyone like they're already a friend. As an interviewer, that's such an invaluable skill and a great remedy for anxiety or nerves, but... What an amazing way to frame the world in general. That disarming and compassionate practice is at the heart of everything that Kelly does. And I'd like to believe it's at the heart of my new music and of Salute the Songbird. It's just the right way to be. So friend, thank you so much for listening. And I hope you enjoy the rest of our time with Kelly McCartney. I do identify as non-binary, genderqueer. Right. Which I only really figured out maybe eight or nine years ago or found that language, which is something Aunt Jimily and I talked about on a recent episode. Which I guess is an influence in its own right then. Yeah, because I'm what we like to call masculine of center. Mm-hmm. So I enjoy a little bit of male privilege, not going to lie. Like contractors and mechanics don't talk down to me. You know, they don't try to hit on me. So I think my experience walking through the world and the industry has been very different than a more feminine woman's experience, which is why, again, the locking arms and having the intersectionality and the conversations together is so important because I might have some insights that others don't. Right. So, you know, I'm waiting to be invited into some of those conversations. Absolutely. Thank you for being one of the first. Well, that's one thing I wanted to do with this show because I was examining 
season one, which I absolutely loved. And Osiris Media, who I work with, they wanted more female authors and, and, and hosts because they were underrepresented and they'll be the first to tell you that. But I was like, season two needs to be clear that it's not about being a female. It's just about having this unique perspective in this industry and being someone who helps other women in the industry by promoting their music and by really yeah. genuinely supporting the people who are underrepresented. And I'm an expert at being a woman in the industry and some things I just, I have men all over my career and I collaborate <laughs> with them. But when it comes to just kicking it and talking about these things is what I wanted to focus on. But I wanted to make sure that I was embracing everything that it is that is being a woman yeah. in this industry. And I said yeah. that in quotes for people listening. <laughs> you can't see me. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what it's about, right? You know, Reese and I talk about that all the time of just like, we're fine being a token. We're fine being tokenized if that gets us in the door so we can hold the door open and bring right. all our friends along. And right. that's what it's about, you know? So, yeah. If there is a rise in invitations to black indigenous people of color or people from the LGBTQ community right now that feels a little disingenuous. Hopefully that just means that this is the beginning of the normalizing of that and it not yeah. being a token thing, but yeah. Growing pain. Perhaps this is just that spark where things will level out and this will be the new norm. Sure. Hope I so. Hope. It feels like that's the case, you know, right. if we can make it stick, you know, Reese and I both have big mouths. So I have a feeling if you guys are at the helm of these kinds of things, it's going to stick. <laughs> We're going to do it. <laughs> We're going to make it happen. That's the hope. That is the hope. Yeah. You got to see it at our table, buddy. Amen. Thank you. I can't wait. I can't wait to sit at a real table with you someday soon. And Indeed. I'm looking forward yeah. to that. Yeah. But thank yeah. you for your time and Absolutely. for everything that you do and the great music that you put out there and. Just keep kicking ass. We salute you. Will do. Thank you so much. Yeah. Appreciate it. That's a wrap. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kelly. Make sure to keep up with her on her socials at Kelly McCartney X. And of course, give her new show on Apple Music a listen. It's Record Bin Radio. You will not regret it. And to keep up with me, my music, and my touring calendar, you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at I am Maggie Rose. In fact, as I speak to you right now, I'm backstage in Annapolis at Ram's Head on stage. I've just kicked off my 60-date tour to promote my record that drops in August called Have a Seat. And we are officially on the Have a Seat tour. I'm so thrilled. I hope I get to see you all out there on the road. And make sure to go check out my calendar on Maggie Rose Music. Find out where you can come see us live and keep up with me on With The Band, where you can get exclusive Salute The Songbird content along with new music, live stream concerts, and more. You've been listening to Salute The Songbird on Osiris Media. The executive producers are Kirsten Cluthy and Brad Stratton from Osiris Media and Austin Marshall. And the show is edited and mixed by Brad Stratton. Original music by Maggie Rose. Please subscribe to Salute The Songbird on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. And if you like the show, recommend it to a friend or leave us a review so that others can join the conversation. Thanks so much for listening. And to close out the show, here's one of mine and Kelly's favorites, Dreams by Fleetwood Mac.
Osiris. <laughs> 